We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. Hebrews 13, 10 to 16. For the first time this morning, Lord willing, we'll complete the text next Lord's Day. Hebrews 10, I'm sorry, to Hebrews 13, 10 to 16. We have an altar. We do. Yep. We have an altar whereof they, you should ask, who are they? We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. As in Old Testament tabernacle. As in Levitical priesthood. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without or outside the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without or outside the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him, without or outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Father, we recognize that these verses, even upon first reading, have something particular to do with our worship of Thee and the connectedness of that worship directed towards Thee as connected for us by Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us then as we deal with the practical ramifications of worship in connection to Jesus Christ as uniquely dealt with in this section of thy holy word. We ask your blessing upon each one who is here as we open our Bibles and our hearts to the teaching ministry of thy spirit through the word. We do have great expectations. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. If you show up to my office tomorrow and you say to me, Pastor, let's go. I'm going to ask you, where? And if you say to me, Pastor, you need to pay. I'm going to ask you, for what? Hebrews 13.13 says, let's go and tells us exactly where God would have believers 
go. Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us offer sacrifice and tells us exactly what that involves regarding the worship of God in this New Testament era. As we've said repeatedly, that this whole book of Hebrews is an exhortation, and it pointed you previously to the proof of that in chapter 13 and verse 22. I beseech you, brethren, suffer this word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. The whole of the book of Hebrews is an exhortation, and you can add Hebrews 13.13 13 and Hebrews 13.15 to the list of exhortations that are given to believers running throughout the book. Some have called Hebrews the lettuce book of the Bible because of the repeated phrase, let us. Let us fear, let us labor, let us hold fast, let us come boldly, let us mature, let us draw near, let us consider, and now let us go forth and let us continually offer. We've also said that with the doctrinal truth of Christ culminating back in chapter 12 and verse 24, and the overriding appeal uh, in grace to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, that Hebrews 13 goes on to address the practical matters of life in the Lord regarding, first, biblical fellowship, secondly, biblical leadership, now, biblical worship, and finally, biblical lordship. Our text addresses, in essential elements, worship for those of us in Christ while living on the earth. I want to remind you as we begin again that this book of exhortation was first and foremost directed towards Jewish believers that were suffering at the hands of other Jewish unbelievers who viewed those believers as religious traitors. And whenever we seek to understand the scripture, it is always wise to identify that which uh, scholars call the original audience. We understand these words have phenomenal application to us all here today. But as originally written, they were written to Jewish believers who were considered traitors of Judaism by their Jewish brethren. This is why the presentation of worship here, in the terms of going to the altar and offering sacrifice, contrasts the Old Testament sense of going and offering under the law as was still being practiced when Hebrews was written with the New Testament sense of going and offering in the Lord. So here's the contrast. Going and offering under the law with going and offering in the Lord. That's what Hebrews 13, 10 to 16 is all about. It's about the topic of worship, the practical ramifications of worship that is presented to us 
in teaching matter by means of contrast, contrasting the way in which Old Testament worshipers went and offered under the law and the way in which New Testament worshipers go and offer in the Lord. In the law, in the Lord, going and offering in the law, going and offering in the Lord. We have here then, upon takeaway, the New Testament foundations of worship in the Lord's church. As worshipers of God, with faith in Jesus Christ, you might be surprised to hear that we do have an altar. Verse 10, we do have an altar. But you also should note that we do not have, verse 14, an abiding city. Here's another little contrast that I'd call your attention to before we dive into the practical ramifications of worship as presented in our text. Not only do you have an overriding contrast between the Old Testament worshiper under the law and the New Testament worshiper in the Lord, but you furthermore have another contrast in the sense that we do, as New Testament believers, have an altar, although it's not in the church. And we do not have an abiding city. And in order to understand that references to altar and abiding city, we have to again pay particular attention to the Old Testament law and the practice of the Jewish na uh, nation at the altar of sacrifice as a part of the tabernacle, uh, that portable tabernacle, and later the more permanent temple. And uh, 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 we also have that, that emphasis of, of not only the idea of, of offering at the altar, but we have a specific statement here of the fact that we don't have an abiding city because the Jewish worshipers did have indeed an abiding city. They had an altar and a city. We have an altar and not a city. That's the further contrast. So the contrast is not only under the law and in the Lord, but it's also we both have an altar. We don't have a city. You with me? Some of you look at me like not at all. Okay. Nonetheless, one of the criticisms that was directed towards the Jewish people back in the day with faith in Christ is that they had really given up an awful lot because in Christianity they had no altar. And by that it was meant you don't have any place to sacrifice. You do not have any place on earth in which to sacrifice. Therefore, Hebrews says to the believers in Jesus that they do indeed have an altar. Verse 10, the Old Testament saints had an altar in a physical place tabernacle temple, but the New Testament believer has an altar in a physical person, Jesus Christ, as crucified on the altar of sacrifice once and for all. Old Testament worship was specified and consecrated within the city walls of Jerusalem. It appears that both the city and the temple were still operable when the book of Hebrews was written. Historically, we know that by 70 A.D., 
the worship in that temple ceased because the temple was destroyed. If the book of Hebrews had been written after 70 AD, then the unbelieving Jews would no longer be saying to the believing Jews, you don't have an altar, because they wouldn't have one either. But they were saying, you don't have an altar, and here we have the revelation that, oh, yes, we do. And then we have the further indication that we do not have a continuing city on earth to which to come, which is both historically and eschatologically significant. Eschatologically, the believer in Jesus looks to the coming heavenly Jerusalem as promised. No New Testament believer looks to an earthly city as the key or the center of worship on earth of the one true God. There is no continuing city on the earth for us as believers in which we say, well, next year hopefully we'll all be together in Grand Rapids. No. We'll all be together in Detroit. No. We'll all be together uh, in, uh, in New York City. No. We'll all be together in San Francisco. Nope. We'll all be together in St. Louis. Nope. And neither do we say we'll all be together in Jerusalem. Because there is, for believers, no city center that is the key to worshiping God on earth. Why? If we were to argue for a town, we might as well throw an Elto. This is just as good a city center for worshiping God as any other place in the world, and to call this a city is kind of a misnomer. You know what I mean. We have no continuing city center on which we worship God but we do have an altar, as verse 10 declares. Historically, the long-standing allegiance of the Jewish people to the city of Jerusalem as the place to worship God became, of course, obsolete when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The unbelieving Jews... Uh, have not had a city center for worship since 70 A.D. Hebrews says to those believing Jews, you don't have a city center for worship here and now. That'd be right. But you are poised to worship in the eternal city of God to come. And what the unbelieving Jews hadn't had, uh, a city of worship for all these years, believing Jews have had uh, the worship of God, the one true God, exactly as construed. So, one more thought to the contrast uh, before we begin to dive into the text. Uh, the contrast here again. Old Testament worship, characterized by an altar of sacrifice, the Levitical priesthood, and the city of Jerusalem. Three components of Old Testament worship. The altar of sacrifice, the Levitical priesthood, and the city of Jerusalem. That stands in this passage in contrast to New Testament worship, 
which is contrasted by one, the altar of sacrifice. The messianic priesthood after the order of Melchizedek and the heavenly Zion to which we've come. Hebrews 12, 22. So three and three. Old Testament worship, altar of sacrifice, Levitical priesthood, city of Jerusalem, New Testament worship, altar of sacrifice, messianic priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and the heavenly Zion to which we have come. Now in light of this profound contrast, we seek to hear the two exhortations that direct our worship as found in this text. And they are, let us go forth, verse 13, and let us offer the sacrifice of praise, verse 15. Today, we are not preaching, let it go. Tonight, we are preaching, uh, let's go forth in worshiping God in the way herein prescribed. Next week, we will consider, let us offer continually, or let us offer the sacrifice of God continually. Uh, we can use the exhortation as found in verse 13 as an umbrella outline for the whole logic of the text, uh, running from verse 10 to verse 14. We can see verses 10 to 14 within the umbrella of verse 13. Three parts. One, let us go forth therefore unto him. Part two, outside the camp. Part three, bearing his reproach. Uh, verses 10 to 14 explain the details and the logic of the exhortation, let us go forth therefore unto Christ, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Go to Christ, number one, outside the camp, number two, bearing his reproach, number three. Now let's back up and hit the logic as it unfolds before us in the text. Let us go forth in worshiping God by means of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without or outside the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without or outside the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him. His crucifixion was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and the sweet memory of the cross is the altar upon which the believer worships God in spirit and in truth. And the fact that our altar 
is indeed a cognitive reality in the New Testament era is underscored by the command at ordinance, this do in remembrance of me. The communion table, the table of the Lord, is not an altar. And yet the table of the Lord is a table of remembrance of the altar, of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. As verse 10 says it, the superior altar and sacrifice of Christ nullifies the Old Testament rituals in sacrifice. Those Jewish people that were clinging to the Old Testament ritual after the death of Christ on the cross for sins, after his burial, resurrection, and ascension, those that clung to the Old Testament ritual after that glorious reality of God's intervention and provision in Jesus Christ have no authority or access in worshiping God. So says verse 10, we have an altar which they have no right to eat which serve as priests in the Old Testament rituals of the tabernacle. Meaning that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ritual that foreshadowed the person of the work of Christ was indeed made to be obsolete. It was simply that which foreshadowed the reality. Hence, when the Apostle Paul deals with the same subject, uh, when writing to the Colossians, he says, hey, don't live upon the shadow. Live upon the reality of Jesus Christ. You and I don't worship God in the shadows of prediction. We worship God in the reality of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ over death, and the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. And so when we think about our altar, we don't think about some kneeling bench at the front of a church. We don't even think about the communion table. We think about the once-for-all place on earth where the Son of God made man, gave his life for our sins, that you and I, by faith, by faith, might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the exhortation of worship is, let's go to uh, him. Let's go to him. Let's go forth unto him. Let's go forth unto him. What is Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, all about? Going forth unto him. What's Sunday morning, 11.15, all about? Going forth unto him. What's uh, Sunday night at uh, 6 o'clock, all about in education? Going forth unto him. All of the believer's action, all of the believer's motion, all of the believer's activity is unto him, unto him, unto him, unto him, unto him. 
The only question at worship is, is the Lord Christ enjoying it? The only question at worship is, is the Lord Christ enjoying it? Are we singing? Are we praying? Are we teaching? Are we preaching? So that Christ would be pleased. Because all of worship is, let us go forth, therefore, unto him. See it? Number two, let us go forth unto him outside the camp. Verses 11 and 12, as read and reread, reflect, reflect the particular activity of the high priest in sacrifice for sin. And that particular activity only took place once a year. And it's called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest got particularly involved in the sacrifice for sin under the law in Israel. Verse 11 calls our attention to the yearly ritual in which the carcass of the sacrificial animal for sin was taken outside the worship site and completely and entirely consumed way outside the encampment of Israel, far, far away from the uh, confines of the tabernacle or the temple. The regulations of ritual for sacrifice at Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, calls for the sacrifice, the carcass of sacrifice, to be completely consumed of God outside the camp, outside the tabernacle, outside the camp, the encampment of Israel. Now, in the regular sacrifice uh, given day by day in tabernacle or temple worship, uh, the blood would be applied and poured out before the Lord. But the carcass, the flesh of the animal, would be eaten by the priest on duty and the worshipers and the family that brought the sacrifice. Day by day by day, when sacrifices were brought, the sacrificed animal blood would be applied appropriately, and then the carcass would be consumed, eaten, by the high priest and his family and the worshipers and their family. But not so on Yom Kippur. The reference in verse 11 and 12 deal with the reality of Yom Kippur, when the blood would be applied in special ways and poured out before the Lord, but the carcasses of sacrifice would be burned up completely outside the camp. No one ate the flesh on Yom Kippur. It was completely consumed of God. Verse 12 then confirms that the Old Testament sacrifice 
the Old Testament ritual on the Day of Atonement foreshadowed the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was, as a matter of historical fact and herein biblical notation, crucified outside the walls of the temple complex. This has meaning for all of us in Christ, but it had special meaning to Jewish believers who knew that Christ was offered purposely outside the routine ritual of sacrifice under the law. It has meaning for us, but it had particular meaning for those Jewish individuals that had lived in righteous response to God under ritual and then began to relate to God religiously in worship based upon reality. They were people that lived their life under ritual and then by faith come to live their life under reality. The ritual foreshadowed the reality. But once the Jewish individual knew the reality of Christ, there's no longer any point to the ritual. And nothing in this Christian life would cause us to be sentimental over things we've done in the past, but rather to devote all of our energy, all of our love, all of our devotion to the Lord our God, and go and go and go and keep going unto Christ, unto Christ, unto Christ, the reality of all worship before God, not the ritual of worship before God. God has not called us to the ritual. He has called us to the reality of relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in all the things we've explained, and there's some good things to think upon and some good things to know and some uh, logical development there in which we have to work at, at being non-Jewish in order to relate to the text, but we still haven't come to what I believe is the main point of the exhortation in verse 13, which is the last thing said. Verse 13 says, first, let us go forth therefore unto him. Worship is all about Christ, Christ, and Christ. And we go to him outside the camp, outside the realm of ritual. We do not relate to God on the basis of ritual. We relate to God on the basis of relationship and reality in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are great things to know, and yet not yet the main point. What is the main point? Bearing his reproach. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Jewish Christians in the first century, like their Lord, would of necessity bear the reproach of those clinging to the ritualistic system. 
How do you explain the uh, adversarial relationship between the scribes and the Pharisees, the most devout followers of Old Testament ritual in the first century, with the Lord of glory who gave the law to begin with? How would you describe the uh, adversarialism between the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, they, first of all, went beyond the ritual as God prescribed it. And secondly, they clung to the ritual when the reality of the God-man was in their face. You cannot worship God apart from Christ. You cannot relate to God apart from Christ. No man cometh unto the Father, said Jesus, but, finish the verse. Just as Christ was led forth in public ridicule and disgrace outside the city for crucifixion in the will of God, believers ought to know and believers ought to be willing to bear with honor any sufferings associated with a clear testimony for the truth of Christ while living in hostile territory while people cling to their religious rituals. He suffered on the way to saving us and we must be willing to suffer some on the way while worshiping him. After all, we have here no abiding city, but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness with eye upon the promise of the coming day of fulfillment. Faithful worship here and now involves some reproaches. But faithful worship of God in Christ ends with glories and perfections as God has promised. And so, whenever we think about worshiping God, we ought to think about coming to Christ. We ought to think about the way of God with the Christ outside the camp. And we ought to think about the Lord's reproaches while on earth. And thereby, we ought to understand that to worship God in this hour will involve both sufferings and glory. Let us go forth unto him. Let us worship Christ. Let us honor Christ. Let us bear the reproach of Christ as we keep talking about the Lord Jesus. Some of us know ourselves to be uh, the sons of God on our way to glory. But the glory of Christ as man was preceded by suffering and reproach. 
Jesus asked the disciples on the Emmaus Road after the resurrection, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And what the passage that we study concerning worship here uh, in Hebrews uh, 13 indicates is that worshiping God in Christ rightly uh, will involve for us uh, some suffering uh, on our way to glory. It will involve some reproach uh, on our way to glory. But the good news is, is to where we're going now and where we're going soon, where we go now is to the Lord himself in worship and prayer. And where we go soon is to the very presence of God in heaven. And on that basis, we not only say amen, but we do say glory. Glory to God for what is in store for the people of God today and ahead. And then logically, not hard at all to get to the closing chorus. Hey, this week, let's be talking about Jesus. Let's make our minds, our hearts, our lives beat for the reality of Christ as the centerpiece of our worship. Father, thank you for the listening ear. Help us now to be a responsive people. For we do pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.